CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss how to deal with never feeling like you're enough. We show you how to overcome the insidious trap of people-pleasing. Look at the most effective treatments for OCD, panic attacks, anxiety, and stress. We discover the dangers of toxic perfectionism and how it might be holding you back. We tell you why the word should is so dangerous and much more with our guest, Taylor Neuendorp. Do you need more time, time for work, time for thinking and reading, time for the people in your life, time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed the surprising science of creativity. 
We started with a fascinating look into how your brain creates reality around you and assigns meaning to things that often have no meaning at all. Then we examined the unlikely relationship between doubt, ambiguity, and creativity. We asked how you can chip away at your assumptions so that you can open up spaces of possibility to be more creative. We explored the foundations of asking truly great questions and examined the way that doubt can be a powerful force for unleashing creative insights and much more with our previous guest, Dr. Bo Lotto. If you want to create epic breakthroughs in your life, check out our previous episode. Now for our interview with Taylor. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Taylor Neuendorp. Taylor is the founder and president of the Chicago Counseling Center and specializes in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder, perfectionism, and anxiety disorders. He's worked as a practicing therapist for many years and completed the International OCD Foundation's Behavioral Therapy Training Institute. He's also the author of the Perfectionism Workbook, Proven Strategies to Break Free from Perfectionism and Achieve Your Goals. Taylor, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate you having me on. Well, we're excited to have you on the show today. I'd love to start out with, you know, obviously you've done a lot of work around perfectionism and you talk about kind of this idea of the myth of perfection. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I think a lot of people could probably relate to the fact that, especially in our culture, there is a lot of importance placed on doing your best, being successful. And there's really nothing wrong with that. Where things kind of go askew, if you will, is when people start to form the belief that they have to be perfect in every respect of their life to achieve success. They have to be perfect in their personal and professional relationships. They have to come across perfectly when they're interacting with anyone on any level, and they can't let anybody perceive that they might possess any sort of weaknesses. And, you know, they especially tend to live in fear of people knowing that they might have possibly made a mistake at at some point in their life. So this myth of perfection is that it is a positive thing, that it's something that people could and should strive for in order to have a certain amount of success in their life. But the problem is that I think most people will probably acknowledge that Perfection is simply impossible to achieve, and that's because perfection is a, it's a subjective thing. So two different people are not going to kind of define perfection in the same way. So again, it's something that no one could ever really truly achieve. And the problem that is happening more and more for a lot of people is that the more they're striving to attain perfection in their lives, and they're simply not achieving it because, again, it's unachievable they're experiencing a lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of discontent, and that leads to really unpleasant things to experience. Certainly stress, anxiety, depression. It can even drive some people to really destructive behaviors, whether it's eating disorder behaviors in an attempt to achieve the quote-unquote perfect body. Some people turn to substance abuse of some sort of another because they can't cope with feeling like a failure all the time. And there is a big crossover with perfectionism and a wide range of psychological disorders, especially things like eating disorders, like I mentioned, anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. I think you bring up a really good point and, and it's something we talk a lot about on the show, which is basically the 
idea that you should try to hide your weaknesses or ignore your mistakes or bury your mistakes is, is really problematic and really dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I just believe as a person and I see, you know, the more I'm, I'm on this planet interacting with all different kinds of humans is that you know, part of being human is having certain strengths and also having certain weaknesses. And a lot of people are very scared to show any sort of vulnerability. But, you know, in my work with people, and what I try and touch on in the book is people actually tend to grow more once they acknowledge their weaknesses and work on ways to improve them. And mistakes, I do not see as a bad thing. There are some mistakes that can have negative consequences. But for the most part, as people, we tend to learn the most and grow and develop the most from the mistakes we've made in our lives. So for somebody who's listening that maybe has a tendency to hide their mistakes or not want to acknowledge their weaknesses, how can they start to sort of chip away at that or move towards an acceptance of, of being imperfect? Sure. So one thing to think about is kind of what I just touched on, which is kind of this shared human condition, which is that we're all imperfect and that's just the way it's supposed to be. It's the way we, we all are. One thing I found really helpful in my work with people is using cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, and especially the technique within cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of understanding any sort of unproductive or unhealthy thinking you might be engaging in, which kind of ties into to the beliefs you hold on to, and really taking a look at how realistic or unrealistic those beliefs are and starting to chip away at your beliefs in a way that feels better to you, for lack of a better phrase, and also can lead to more acceptance and productivity. So I definitely want to kind of dig into cognitive behavioral therapy and, and the implications of that. But before we get too deep down that rabbit hole, I want to come back and you know understand and dig into this idea of perfectionism a little bit more. Tell me about some of the sort of tendencies, you know, I think you call them sort of the five tendencies of toxic perfectionism. Tell me a little bit more about how those kind of manifest and, and what each of those are. Yeah, definitely. Well, the first thing to understand is that there's overlap among all the different tendencies that people who struggle with what I call dysfunctional perfectionism tend to have. And really quick, I just want to say, you know, perfectionism itself, it's a personality trait. And people may have some traits that fall under these different perfectionistic categories. So when I go over them, it's not that anybody fits into just one box. People often share a few of these different what I call toxic tendencies. The first one that people really tend to get stuck in and struggle with is what is known as people-pleasing perfectionism. And this occurs when people, for whatever reason, sometimes it's because of you know their family environment that they grew up in and certain expectations that were placed on them. Sometimes it's because of beliefs they come to form because of expectations placed on them by teachers, coaches, mentors over the years. People start to form this idea that everything they do in their life must be done in the service of helping someone else feel good about them, if that makes any sense. So in essence, they're not really doing anything for themselves. Every action they're taking is designed to please somebody else. 
and they really feel that they have to get this external stamp of approval to feel good about themselves at all. And this drives people to work excessively. They kind of put self-care way, way, way on the back burner. These are people who get burnt out very frequently, both academically and in their professional careers. These are people who may not be fully honest or be their true selves when it comes to any sort of personal or intimate relationship. And again, it all falls under this umbrella of they feel like they have to do everything just to make other people like them. And again, this is something that is pretty much an impossible and unachievable goal because I'm kind of of the mindset that no matter what you do in your life, there's no way to please everybody all the time. So that's one of the most toxic tendencies of perfectionism. Before we dig into the next one, I'd love to talk a little bit more about people pleasing because I think that's something that resonates for me for sure. And I'm sure many listeners also struggle with it. Tell me more about kind of the root cause behind the tendency to want to be a people pleaser. Yeah, that's a great question. It's hard to know the root cause for everyone simply because everyone's an individual. So one of the reasons I mentioned that perfectionism does seem to be a personality trait is because there's some evidence that's starting to show that this is actually you know, a tendency that people are born with. And when you look at people who struggle with perfectionistic tendencies, not all the time, but more often than not, there is a history of other things within the family. So it could be history of things like anxiety, depression, OCD, even a history of things like substance abuse and that sort of thing. So there's more and more research showing that it's very possible there's actually a genetic component that's influencing people's perfectionistic tendencies. Having said that, people can be born with this genetic predisposition, if you will, and then grow up in an environment that kind of influences these tendencies even more and really solidifies that what really becomes a need, a perceived need to please everyone. So again, everybody's different. A lot of times it does, you know, does arise out of the environment we grow up in. So I use an example in the perfectionism workbook about a young woman I worked with. She was the youngest of four kids in her house. Both parents were highly successful, very well-liked individuals. Her older siblings all excelled in school, all did very well, you know, with their extracurricular activities. I had an older brother who was an amateur athlete for a number of years. So she grew up with this expectation that she had to be the best. And what she saw was that the more success everyone in her family had, the better liked they were, the more friends they had, the more people were coming around her house day in and day out. So she started to internalize and come to form this idea that for me to make other people happy, for me to feel good about myself, I have to please others. And the best way I know to do that is to always be at the top of the class. I have to be the best on my volleyball team. I have to not just volunteer for, but, you know, be the the head of every extracurricular activity I can think of. And these are ideas that if people start to believe them at younger ages, childhood, adolescence, they become solidified in early adulthood. And it's really hard to kind of shake those beliefs. So I have a couple of sort of questions around this, but one, uh, you know, I'm curious how do you ultimately sort of overcome the tendency of people pleasing? But I'm also really curious, you know, for somebody who 
is kind of in that world of wanting to please people and having your identity be sort of rooted around, you know, feeling like you need to achieve and be successful to be loved. If they sort of resolve that issue, do they then stop being productive? Do they then stop, you know, sort of on the journey of success? Or how do you think about that piece of the puzzle? Yeah, that's an excellent question as well. That's actually something I hear my clients express a fair amount is this fear that if they stop operating the way they have been, if they give up some of their beliefs and their perfectionistic expectations of themselves, that somehow they will then kind of flip to this total opposite, which is being a completely unproductive, unliked person. And all I can tell you is I've never once seen that happen to anybody as they've worked on trying to overcome their own perfectionistic tendencies. And I think the reason for that is because they have kind of set the bar so high for themselves that they can take the quote unquote risk of lowering the bar a fairly decent amount. And they're still going to be performing at a higher level than the average person. They're still going to be liked just as well as they ever were. I think one of the most important things for people with people-pleasing tendencies to kind of explore is when you're undertaking any sort of action, any sort of behavior engaging, you're engaging in, how much of it is because you truly want to, because it's something that feels meaningful and fulfilling to you, and how much of it is because it feels like it's something you have to do, something you should be doing to make other people like you. And I think A lot of times when people can start to make the distinction that, well, actually, you know, about 85, 90, 99% of the time I'm doing things because I feel like I have to, this is something I need to do, I must be doing to have other people like me, then that's where it's across the line. It's not really a meaningful, fulfilling activity for the individual. They're simply doing it to have other people approve of them. And so how do we start to kind of chip away at the foundations of that or move towards overcoming that tendency? Yeah. So it does take a decent amount of work. This is something I really don't sugarcoat at all. If people want to work on, you know, trying to make some changes in their lives and overcome these tendencies that are causing them more harm than good, causing more stress than fulfillment, it does take a lot of work. It takes a lot of practice. I think the good news is that for people who have perfectionistic tendencies anyway, you're talking about people that tend to be highly intelligent, usually very creative people who are persistent. They've learned how to persevere. They're diligent, hardworking. So it's a matter of working with the individual and trying to help them harness those positive attributes they already possess, those skills that they already can implement and just using them in a different way. And really the main thing to work on time and time again, when you're struggling with perfectionism is really taking a look at your own expectations. So what are your expectations of yourself? What are your expectations of others and how realistic are they? So this, it comes back to some of the cognitive behavioral stuff. It's really doing a lot of challenging your own belief system And really being willing to look at things from a different perspective. One of the things I touch on in the workbook as well is having what is known as a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And people with a fixed mindset tend to operate on the belief that things in life are just the way they are and there's nothing that they can do about them. And that can, you know, 
kind of translate to anything. It can be, you know, they don't believe they can change the way they think about things. They don't believe there's a different way to manage their emotions. They don't believe that there's any way to function other than what they already know. That's a fixed mindset. And ultimately, that is very limiting and it keeps people stuck. So with my clients, I talk a lot about trying to adopt a growth mindset, which for lack of a better phrase, is just being more open-minded. So even if you're skeptical, at least being open to the possibility that maybe there's a different way for you to look at things. Maybe if you're willing to challenge some of your own unproductive thinking patterns and belief systems and start to see things from a slightly different point of view, that is actually a way to feel better about yourself and really reduce stress. And Dr. Carol Dweck, who's the pioneer behind a lot of this mindset research as a previous guest on the show. We'll make sure to include that episode and some other resources we have around fixing growth mindset in the show notes for listeners who want to check that out. I want to come back to these other tendencies of perfectionism. Tell me about the second of the five tendencies. So the second one often surprises people, and it's the person who is a procrastinating perfectionist. So, you know, I, I don't like to make sweeping generalizations, but kind of the stereotype that does still exist in our culture of a perfectionist is someone who might also be known as what they call a, a type A personality, as someone who is working nonstop. You know, oftentimes in the American workplace, these people are called you know, go-getters and that sort of thing. And there are certainly a lot of perfectionists who operate that way. There's also a huge chunk of people who struggle with perfectionistic tendencies that spend a lot of their time feeling paralyzed. And actually, their expectations have gotten so unrealistic and so out of control for them that they just kind of live petrified in fear and they procrastinate. So they will put off doing something because they are afraid that they will not get it exactly right. They will put off things like, applying for a job because they're worried that they don't have the perfect application. They will put off a social interaction because they're worried that they will not come across perfectly. What if they don't have the exact right things to say in a conversation? What if someone notices that they seem a little bit nervous or tired or off their game? So people who really become gradually more and more isolated because their expectations are keeping them stuck in fear. And that can also tie into this, this fear of making mistakes. And like I kind of alluded to, fears of just not coming across as the type of perfect individual they think they should be. You know, I think it's interesting because when you talk about perfectionism, many people may think, hey, I'm not a perfectionist. But the reality is, all of these different tendencies can manifest in a number of different ways, whether you're people pleaser, whether you're a procrastinator, there's a lot of sort of subtle ways that perfectionism can kind of seep into your life. And I think it's really insightful to kind of look at these different angles and, and ways that it may be impacting you. Oh, I completely agree. And I'll say a couple of things to that. So first of all, I'm pretty honest with people. I don't consider myself a perfectionist, but I can fully acknowledge I have perfectionistic tendencies. And by that, I mean, I kind of have this underlying sense that is with me most of the time throughout the day and night that no matter what I've done, I probably could have done it better. Or no matter what I've accomplished in the course of a day, a week, a year, there's this sense that I, I still could have done more. 
And that's both on a professional level and a personal level. As a parent, I feel like there's always more I could be and should be doing as a dad for my kids to take care of my family. On a professional level, I kind of have this ongoing sense that I could always be reading more. I could always be researching more. I could be finding ways to help more people. So it's not something that keeps me awake at night. It's not something that causes an undue amount of distress in my life, but it's certainly there. And when I talk about things in those terms, I do find that most people can relate to that to some degree. The other thing I'll say is that more often than not, when I'm treating someone for perfectionism, they haven't walked into my office and said, hey, I'm a perfectionist. Can you help me with that? It's more that they have noticed, again, this feeling of discontent that no matter what they've achieved, no matter what's happened for them in their lives, they're not satisfied. They don't feel good about what they've done. They don't feel good about themselves as individuals. So they keep pushing themselves harder and harder. That causes a lot of stress and anxiety. Or on the flip side, like we were just touching on, I get people who come in because maybe they've been out of college or grad school for a year, two years, three years, and they haven't found a job yet because, again, they're frozen in fear. They're so worried that they're not going to get everything perfect, get the perfect position, whatever it may be, that they've been sitting around being inactive for years. And that also does not feel good to them. So, you know, there is dysfunctional perfectionism, which is when these expectations and these tendencies are impacting you 24-7. And there's certainly, you know, a fair amount of people out there struggling with that. But I, I completely agree with you that a lot of people have these tendencies at least a few of them, to some degree, it just may not be impacting them to the point where they think they need professional help or they need to do something like pick up a self-help book. And I think it bears repeating that you may not sort of describe yourself as somebody who is a perfectionist, and yet you might be suffering from, you might be a people pleaser, or you might be a chronic procrastinator, or you might be highly critical of yourself, you might have negative self-talk. All of these are different manifestations of what you're essentially calling perfectionism. Yes, I completely agree. I'm glad you mentioned the self-criticism and the negative self-talk. These are things I see across the board for people that I'm treating for anything. It doesn't have to be for perfectionism, but that is a huge factor with something like depression. People experience low mood because they're being very, very hard on themselves. And again, it's this idea that, you know, no matter what they've done, it, it's not good enough. They could always be better. And if you constantly feel like you're not good enough, of course, you're going to feel down. Of course, you're going to feel depressed. Or on the other side, maybe that's causing a high amount of anxiety because you feel like no matter what, you should be pushing yourself harder and harder and harder. And those are the types of things that lead to burnout. So how could we reconceptualize or deal more effectively with negative self-talk and being very self-critical? So this is an area where I know I've mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy a couple of times. This is an area where I really find that mode of therapy, that mode of treatment to be really highly effective. So cognitive behavioral therapy in a nutshell is really getting a solid understanding of how your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors all impact one another. And whether or not we're fully aware of it, those things are almost always influencing one another. And I, I truly believe that 
the way we think about things has a direct impact on our emotions, on our feelings. And those can be emotional feelings. It can be physical sensations uh, that go along with stress. It can be muscle tension, that sort of thing. And it can be even how we feel about ourselves as people. And the way we're thinking about things, the way we're feeling certainly influences our behavior and influences how we act. Or when it comes to procrastination, it can translate to a lack of action. So within cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of it, again, is looking at your thought process. You know, what are your expectations of yourself, of others? What are your beliefs about yourself as an individual? And are those just ideas you've been telling yourself or you've heard maybe from other people in your life? Or are you able to use some objective evidence from your own life to kind of challenge these beliefs you form? So I really think examining your own thought process is a huge, a huge key to overcoming some of this stuff. Also within cognitive behavioral therapy is a mode of treatment that is much more action oriented. And that's called exposure and response prevention. And this is something I use very frequently with people with OCD, anxiety disorders, any sort of specific phobias or panic attacks. And it works very well for people who kind of live in fear of making mistakes. So exposure and response prevention is basically just what it sounds like. It's actually purposely exposing yourself to something that tends to produce some amount of anxiety or distress or discomfort for you, and then preventing your usual response. So one example would be, okay, say someone has an important proposal they're working on for work. The perfectionistic tendency would be that they have to get every single detail exactly right. So that might lead to things like working on it many, 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 many more hours than anybody else in their position would do. It can lead to things like almost compulsively rereading, rechecking what they've created, what they've written, going over it again and again and again and again, just to make sure they haven't missed a single detail, again, out of fear of making a mistake. The exposure piece would be taking something like that and having the person actually try and work on resisting or preventing their usual response. So it would be, okay, write up this proposal and do your best to turn it in without checking it more than twice. And I've come up with little ways to try different exposures with people. I will have them send me a quick email without checking it. I will have them, you know, tell me something that is inaccurate or is wrong. I will have them, you know, write me an email with spelling errors or again, where they've just gotten a fact completely wrong. So they're actually actively practicing making mistakes. And the way the process works is that the more people are actually facing this thing that causes a lot of distress to them and learning that they can tolerate it, any sort of stress or discomfort around it starts to fade. And that actually allows people to see, okay, once I get past the anxiety of getting something wrong, I'm actually better able to see what I have learned from it. And maybe I've learned that, hey, I can tolerate some discomfort. Or maybe I've learned that you know, it's okay to not be the world's best speller. It's okay to misspell things now and then. Nobody's judging me negatively and life goes on. I love exposure and response. And I, and I think that's such a powerful framework. But before we go deeper into that, I want to come back to cognitive behavioral therapy. I want to really sort of concretely look at this for a second. Tell me about how does, you know, someone listening to this episode, 
how would they implement that into their life? How would they implement CBT at a really sort of specific and granular level? So I think the first step, which is really kind of the basis of any CBT work, is learning about and understanding what are known as cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are any sort of unhealthy, irrational, or simply inaccurate thinking patterns that people might be engaging in. And these are actually things that are pretty easy to find. So even with a quick internet search of cognitive distortions, people can start to learn about all the different categories of distorted thinking patterns that tend to be a product of and further exacerbate things like anxiety, depression, and stress. So some examples, one that I really think is probably the most applicable to people who struggle with perfectionism and people-pleasing tendencies is what are known as should statements. So there's a whole category of distorted thinking patterns that simply revolve around the word should. And it's people telling themselves things like, well, I should be at the top of my class. I should be the top salesman in my company. I should never get anything wrong. I should be happy all the time. All these things are kind of telling themselves over and over again that they should or again feel like they have to be doing. And that can be a pretty destructive, distorted thinking pattern. Other thinking patterns that people get stuck in that tend to be unproductive is all or nothing or what is known as black and white distorted thinking. And it's really, that's a very limiting one because in any given situation, you're really only giving yourself two options. So an example would be, I have to be perfect or else I'm a complete failure. And when you really have people kind of look at beliefs like that and break them down, that's when change starts to occur. People can step back, look at things like that a little bit more objectively and say out loud, that's unrealistic. And are those really my only two options in life? And if I'm not perfect, does that necessarily automatically translate to me being a complete failure? No, most people would say it's not. So to get back to your question, I really think learning and familiarizing yourself with all the different types of cognitive distortions that are out there is kind of the first step when it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy. And then breaking down how you tend to feel, how you tend to react when you're thinking those things. So again, for the person that's highly self-critical and is kind of always beating themselves up over and over again, they can recognize that the more they do that, the worse they feel. And again, it can be feeling down, can be feeling dissatisfied, it can be you know, flat out anxiety and panic. So it, it's understanding the connection between thoughts and feelings. And then like I touched on, how those things might be influencing the way you're behaving in any given circumstance, whether it's a social interaction, whether it's you know a task you're working on for work, whatever it may be. So really, it's getting a clear, clear picture for yourself of how those things are all influencing one another. And then with CBT, really coming back to the thought process again, again, and again, and really challenging it. And one question I frequently ask people, and this is not something I came up with, this is kind of an old school standard CBT question, is, okay, this thought you're telling yourself over and over again about yourself or about other people, whatever it may be, if you had to stand up in front of a judge and jury in a court of law and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this thought you are thinking is 100% true, would it hold up? And if it's a distorted thought, 
almost every time the answer is no. And people can identify, I have no evidence to back this thought up. I have no evidence to show me that I'm a failure. I have no evidence, no hard evidence from my own life to show me that people don't like me. So time and time again, it really comes back to challenging the unproductive thinking and trying to gain a new perspective. And people do see that has a direct impact on how they're feeling in general, how they're feeling about themselves, and has a direct impact on how they're acting. It seems like expectations are at the root of many of these tendencies and limiting beliefs. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, this is where I have the advantage of, you know, being a therapist, being a counselor, where I have the time to really help people kind of explore those expectations. Again, where they came from, were these direct messages they were receiving from other people in their lives, or these things that have kind of been influenced by our society in general. I can tell you for a lot of people I work with, male and female, who are struggling with any sort of eating disorder or body image issues, a lot of people give in to kind of these societal expectations of how they, quote unquote, should look, how their bodies, quote unquote, should be. And when it crosses a line into, again, these perfectionistic expectations of how they think they should look, that's where it can get really destructive and, and unhealthy. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. 
That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to come back to exposure and response because I think that's such a such a great framework. Even things as simple as social interactions. We've had a previous guest on the show, Jia Jiang, who talked about the idea of rejection therapy, which is a great way to get comfortable with uncomfortable social interactions. And tell me a little bit more about the science behind why exposure and response is such a useful tool for dealing with any sort of discomfort or negative experiences that we have? Yeah. So what tends to happen for people if there's something that causes them anxiety, if there's something that causes them discomfort, more often than not, the response is to try and avoid it somehow. Or if they're feeling really uncomfortable, try and instantly distract themselves by any means they can think of. So avoidance and distraction are the most common ways people tend to react to something that causes discomfort. And what happens over time is the more people are avoiding something, it's actually increasing their anxiety around it. So, you know, an easy example would be something like someone who has a fear of dogs. And it could be for whatever reason. Maybe they had a bad experience when they were younger, a dog tried to bite them. Maybe not. But for whatever reason, they formed this fear of dogs. So because dogs make them uncomfortable and they tend to get stressed and anxious around them, their solution is to avoid it. But again, what's happening over time is the more they're making all these efforts to stay away from dogs at all costs, it's helping that fear just grow larger and larger in their brain. And at no point are they giving themselves the opportunity to learn that if they actually faced a dog and hung out with a dog, that anxiety around the dog itself would probably start to fade some. So the science behind exposure and response prevention is helping people identify really specific triggers that do tend to produce that discomfort or distress for them. And then gradually, systematically, having them start to face those triggers in any way that they can think of, in any way that their counselor can think of. And what tends to happen more often than not, you know, it's not 100%, nothing is, But more often than not, when people gradually and systematically expose themselves to these feared stimuli over and over and over again, the brain starts to engage in new learning and the brain starts to adjust. New neural pathways are formed and that directly translates to feeling less anxious. And in a nutshell, people start to learn, hey, I I can handle this. I've spent most of my life avoiding this. 
and kind of reinforcing this idea, I was telling myself that I can't deal with this. I can't tolerate this. I can't handle this. But once they actually face it and endure that initial discomfort around it, like I said, the brain starts to figure out, oh, actually, this does not need to be perceived as a threat. And I can tolerate this. And even if there's ongoing discomfort around it, that discomfort tends to be far less and it tends to come and go much more quickly. It's really interesting that the more you avoid something, the greater your kind of fear and anxiety around that becomes. I'm curious, and this was the next thing I wanted to dig into, how does that relate to the connection between perfectionism and OCD? Okay, great question. So the first thing I'll say is a lot of times people are kind of curious or don't seem to really get it when I say I treat perfectionism. And actually, the way I became exposed to perfectionism as an issue and as a clinical issue, I was primarily through my work with people with obsessive compulsive disorder. So just to make a quick distinction, OCD is very much, it is a a brain disorder. Most of the research points to the fact that people are most likely born with OCD and they experience events later on in life that tend to have a kind of pop out or come to the service. Perfectionism itself is not OCD. Like I said earlier, it's more of a personality trait. People can possess perfectionistic characteristics without having obsessive compulsive disorder. But the overlap is that for people with OCD, and again, this is kind of a blanket statement. There are a bunch of different subtypes of OCD, so this is not really doing it justice. But for a lot of people with OCD, they are engaging in compulsive behaviors to get kind of a sense that things feel just right. And you could use any number of examples. And again, it's, it's totally subjective based on the individual. One example could be, okay, I walk into my office and I close the door behind me. Then I get the obsession. The obsession is kind of an intrusive thought or doubt that did I close the door behind me? And because that doubt is so strong for the person with OCD, then they then feel the need to engage in a compulsion. The compulsion would be like, okay, then I need to check the door handle again to make sure it's closed. So they would do that. But again, the nature of the disorder is that no matter how many times a person engages in a compulsion, there's still lingering doubt. So people will often describe it that they will go back to a compulsive act over and over and over again until something changes a little bit in their brain. And again, they just kind of get this feeling where they get this sense that then it feels right. Then it feels like it's okay and they can move on. And kind of the crossover with that perfectionism is that, again, someone may not have OCD, but they may be engaging in a perfectionist behavior like I kind of alluded to. Okay, I'm going to read and reread this email over and over and over and over again until I can make sure it's just right. So I can make sure it feels okay and it seems like it's mistake free and I feel like it's perfect or as close to perfect as it's going to get. So that's that's one example of how there can kind of be a crossover. Again, there are many different types of OCD, but one of the subtypes is people who struggle with things like organization and symmetry. And it can, again, kind of translate to anything. It can be feeling like everything on their desk has to be lined up just right. Clothes have to be put away in their drawers a very, very specific, certain way. And so that kind of gets uh, jumbled up along a lot of times with feeling like things have to be perfect for lack of a better word. I want to come back to now and talk about the solution to some of these challenges 
which you talk about and describe sort of self-acceptance and self-compassion. And I love the way you phrased it in the last chapter of your book, which is being enough and achieving your goals without fear. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk about working towards goals and trying to achieve goals is because I think it's very important to have goals. That's what keeps us moving forward in life. Again, whether it's a personal goal, a professional goal we set for ourselves, you know, it's it's something that drives us. It's something that keeps us moving forward. And it can translate to people achieving a high amount of success in their lives and achieving contentment in their personal lives, uh, you know, achieving a sense of self-satisfaction. The problem with perfectionism is that more often than not, when people are striving towards these goals, first of all, the goals they've set for themselves are unrealistic, many times unattainable, impossible. And the work they're doing towards those goals is motivated by fear. It's motivated by stress. And again, it's the sense that it is something they absolutely must have to be doing or else they're worthless as a person. And then a lot of times when people don't achieve those unrealistic goals they've set for themselves, that just sets off a whole other cycle of self-criticism and negative self-talk, which just perpetuates anxiety and depression. So one of the areas of CBT that I kind of touch on towards the end of the workbook is acceptance and commitment therapy, which is, again, not doing it full justice, but in a nutshell, kind of understanding what you value in your life, what is most important and meaningful to you, and then taking a look at whether or not the goals you've set for yourself actually fall in line with those values. And if there are things that are going to actually help you have more of a sense of fulfillment in your life. So when people are setting goals for themselves that are more based on what they value in their life, what is meaningful and important to them, and they're making those goals you know, specific and measurable and, again, meaningful, that actually tends to provide a lot of natural motivation for them. And it starts to translate to the sense of they're doing something that they want to do versus this perceived need that it's something they have to do to, again, please others or it's something they absolutely must do if they're ever going to feel slightly decent about themselves as a human being. And along with the acceptance piece of things it is a mindfulness component. And I, this is an area that I've really found to be highly beneficial when I'm working with people who've come in, you know, seeking help for really any kind of issue. But, you know, and I think you guys know really at its core, mindfulness is more about just observing things, observing how you're feeling, observing what it is you're thinking about, observing how you and others are acting in your daily life and trying to just make observations without attaching any sort of judgment to them. The problem with dysfunctional perfectionism, again, a lot of it comes back to these expectations people place on themselves, is that if they're not achieving what they think they should be, then that leads to a lot of negative self-judgment. And the more they're judging themselves negatively, again, that's just going to perpetuate things like stress, insecurity, anxiety, and depression. And what would one piece of homework be that that you would give listeners to concretely implement some of the ideas and themes that you've talked about today? I think the first thing for anybody that thinks that, you know, this might be causing some amount of unrest in their life 
is to sit down and do what I call a self-inventory of your own expectations. And I know we've talked about that a lot, but it, it's kind of the keystone towards working on all this other stuff we've been addressing. So kind of the first piece of homework I give people when I meet with them in my office, it's the same thing I would recommend to anybody out there, is take some time to sit down and just be completely and totally honest with yourself. What are your expectations for yourself? And really try and be as thorough, as comprehensive as possible. What are your expectations for yourself when it comes to finances? What are your expectations for yourself when it comes to personal relationships? And that can be friendships. It can be intimate relationships. It can be family relationships. What are your expectations of yourself of how you quote unquote should be when you're interacting with people socially? What are your expectations of yourself when it comes to your lifestyle? That can include your health habits, exercise, diet, whatever it may be. What are your expectations for yourself as far as how you want to feel? And again, what are your expectations as far as what you want to achieve for yourself? And more often than not, when people sit down and they're really honest and they take time and they do this homework assignment really well, they can sit back, read over it and recognize that's unrealistic. That's unrealistic. That's causing me a lot of distress. And so when people are able to kind of step back from their own thoughts and expectations and get a little bit more of an objective perspective, that's kind of the groundwork you need to start to really challenge and change any sort of unproductive thinking and work on just kind of accepting yourself as you are and working towards more realistic and again, more meaningful, more fulfilling expectations. And where can listeners find you and your work online? I've tried to make my website for my practice a pretty good resource for people. And that's just chicagocounselingcenter.com. I've got a few blog posts on there that address perfectionism, address different subtypes of obsessive compulsive disorder, some of the treatment methods we've talked about, like exposure and response prevention, CBT, mindfulness. I also have links to other great sites that are out there for resources. I have a link to my book on there. And you know, when I created the Perfectionism Workbook, I really tried to make it as comprehensive as possible. I tried to think about all the different facets of perfectionism I've seen in really countless clients I've had over the years. And I've tried to throw in pretty much every different kind of treatment technique I've tried with people that's had any sort of positive result. So it's a very skills-based book. It's a very, it is a workbook. It requires a lot of work on the individual, but so far the feedback I'm getting on it is that it's practical, it's helpful, and it seems to be a pretty decent resource for people struggling with some of these tendencies. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this knowledge and wisdom with our listeners. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate you taking the time. It was a pleasure speaking with you as well. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including 
an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 